Hello and welcome to the latest edition of How Might We? And we're going to do something slightly different today. We're not going to name this podcast till the end. So I'm pleased to say my guest this week is Mo Ash. Uh, Mo, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience, please? Thank you so much for having me. And my name is Mo. My background is in human resources management. I have a bachelor's degree in human resources management and a master's degree in international development because I was planning on actually working for the UN. That was the, that was the deal. That was the thought. And I did for a couple of years in UNESCO in the scientific department, and that didn't really go by me. I didn't like it. <laughs> so my aspiration didn't really, didn't really come through with, uh, with the United Nations, although I, my, my, my dream was to work for the UNDP. But then I got into uh, learning and development, started off as a trainer, continued on from a trainer to an L&D consultant. But then again, that was not the thing that I liked. I found myself in instructional design instead, and I had a very good opportunity for working for a company that does board game simulations. Mm-hmm. And from that, I fell in love with games, games, simulations, game-based learning. And it continued on this way until I opened up my own establishment. It's called The Catalyst, which is an instructional design uh, consultancy that is focused on building learning experiences, whether that was e-learning, virtual learning programs, or gamified learning journeys. And that's basically it. The rest is history. The rest is history, as they say. Mm-hmm. So again, I think like most of us, a rather convoluted way in how we end up in L&D. There's very few people that I've met whose career has been, I want to get into learning and development, and that's where I want to be. I think you say, I think we fall into it, and then we, we love an aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. your introduction to gamification and games. I'm surprised by people that actually get out of college or when they get into college, they're like, oh, I want to end up being an L&D. I, I, I don't understand them. I mean, how, how did you land on such an idea so easily? <laughs> but from, from, from my part of the world, I find that a lot, of, a lot of people that went into pharmacy work in L&D. A lot of pharma backgrounds go into L&D. Why? I don't know. But you see a lot of doctors... And I'm like, do you have like a PhD in education? You have a PhD in like in something related to L&D or so? No. Or, or like I wouldn't say a PhD, I would say a DBA. No. They're just either doctors or people that gra- graduated from, from pharmacy. Maybe that's, maybe anybody wants to do a PhD. That could be a question in PhD that we can investigate for your thesis. Why is pharma, the transition from pharma into L&D, <laughs> so, uh, so prevalent? Okay, so we go, I mean, before we came on, we were talking about uh, a wide variety of subjects as we tend to. And I just, I think the theme that I, I, I quite liked where we were is about L&D looking outside of L&D to deliver the solutions we need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way I see it is that many people are too overwhelmed with the data that is in L&D and the tools that are available for L&D that they miss out on so much out of it. For instance, when we look at virtual tools for L&D, we look at Storyline and Captivate and and, uh, Camtasia, Snagit and all of that. But as a matter of fact, there's so much to, 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 to offer from marketing, from project management, from graphic designers, 
from people that work in a lot of in a lot of what can I say industries, colorful aspects of 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 the work. Oh, I'm sorry, of the professional life that we can look into. For instance, if we look at graphic designers, we can under, understand so much from them on how to build a good handout, mm-hmm. a good a good learning experience, a good session. I could look at marketing to get AI tools, augmented reality tools. I can find tools that can do surveys for me. I can find tools that could do QR codes for free more often. And when I look at project management, I can find Trello. I can find Jamboard, Mural, Miro. I can find many collaborative tools that people use to build projects or to convene in a meeting upon something. Well, I can use this in my, in my sessions to do, for instance, case studies projects, to put a game, to create an activity where people can actually work together. And I'm not only looking at it from a virtual perspective, even even in the physical space, like face-to-face, I have used so much out of a tool called Metaverse. Now, Metaverse or Metaverse, I don't know how it's pronounced, honestly. So Metaverse or Metaverse, it's a tool where marketeers use it to advertise augmented reality ads. But I made an augmented reality board game out of it. I made a full-on learning experience of an augmented reality escape room. And I've made it for 200 people. And it didn't cost me a single penny. I didn't pay a dollar in it because it's a free tool. Mm -hmm. Unless you want to like upgrade and use like far more advanced utilities in it, but I don't need it. So one of the things that people in L&D should look into is to venture out of L&D, to venture out of the toolbox that we have into other stuff, just to broaden their perspective that L&D is not the tools that we always market about. And also you should borrow from teachers Teachers have so many lovely tools that are made for educators, like Nearpod, like quizzes, even Kahoot that many LND people are using these days was actually made for K-12. There's a, a fully gamified platform called Classcraft. I have created long programs around Classcraft and people will be like, but this was made for kids. Well, make it work for adults. It's about the content you provide within the tool. It's not about the tool itself. And again, when we were just talking, me and you, I'm telling you, it's not about the number of tools. It's about the design, the learning objectives that you're trying to achieve. This is what makes it work, not the number of tools that you have. But if you have a good tool, you can make so much with it. Yeah, I mean, that for me, apart from, again, we were talking about when when we, people from experience and to go to HR and when we would recruit somebody, we want somebody with experience in our field. And I said, well, no, we've got to look outside of our field. And that's part of that, that the integrate, we need to integrate with other parts of the organization and say, what do you actually do? What tools do you use? How do you get your job done? And then look at how might that help me do what I need to do. And I, I like what you said. It's about that experience. Well, not the experience, but the, the tool, is a vehicle that allows something to happen, but it's understanding what needs to happen. And especially now we're a year into uh, COVID pretty much oh, yeah. since COVID hit. And I think when we, when we, when L and D moved into the virtual world from the face to face world, 
it pretty much moved what it did face to face into the virtual landscape. And I think mm-hmm. there's now is the opportunity to really explore this, what is available to us to, to create some amazing experiences and amazing journeys with people. Actually, let me rephrase. It's actually borrowing discipline. It's borrowing perspective rather than the tool. Like certain tools and certain gadgets, if you may, have been made for those disciplines. Now, let me see what am I doing? What do I need to, 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 to bridge to my learners and let me build upon it? Like, for instance, we were just talking. I'm... I want to get people onto a Zoom session, something simple, nothing more. And you and me, we know that people, when they get in into Zoom until this day, even after a whole year of Zoom and MS Teams, they'll be like, where's the reaction button? How can I do the chatting? Oh, okay. How do I raise my hand? How can I do screen share? All of these very simple common sense points to us, to certain people, they're novelty. They're things that they never heard before. So the the easiest thing, the easiest possible thing is to record a video, put it on YouTube, send it an email, or send it in a link even on their WhatsApp or their Slack or whatever that they use, Telegram, for them to get oriented about you before a session. And this is this is extremely beneficial in so many ways. They get oriented on the program. They know the learning objectives. They know what to expect. They feel at ease. They got to know you and they learn something new. So it's actually a reinforcement video. Another tool away from YouTube is something called Flipgrid. So Flipgrid is actually used by teachers. And I do something in, in my classes that I tell people go into this link and record a video of yourself for like two minutes just to introduce who you are and what are you looking for into this program. And the grid is accessible by everyone. So every time someone goes into that grid and records a video, he sees the other people or she sees the other people. So you get oriented on your class and the program and the other people that you might be with before you even venture into that class, before you even start that class. And it's a free tool. And it doesn't cost anything. It just costs you to create a grid and send them a link. I mean, I like, again, we'll go about the tools. It's not really the tools that do it. It's about what it's doing and how can, how does that help me do what I want to do? And it is, again, we've been talking before. And for me, what virtual has allowed us to do really, I think, and sort of the perception of it is, this learning journey that we, where the people are going through. Whereas before it was face-to-face, people used to rock up, you do the training, you'd finish. I think it's now much more about, okay, what can we do to sort of enroll people into our, into this event, if it's going to be an event or if it's, and we talk a lot about the blended approach now where we, we're yeah. using multiple, multiple ways of engaging with people. So I think utilizing that and seeing that whole journey and saying, how can we enroll people into this? What can we do to make this so that the time they spend with the facilitator, the trainer, whatever you're going to call this person, which is generally one of the, if not the most expensive aspect of this learning you want that time to be spent doing the learning not this orientation so then that the time that we spend with the people is where that's that that person is bringing something that's really important to this project because or this program because of their knowledge experience whatever it is they're bringing we want to get the most use out of that 
without without causing any cognitive load because confusing interfaces causes a huge noise to the learner writing concisely is a way putting means of uh, like collaborative uh, strategies for the learner to engage with other learners and to know what to do is an aid for their cognitive load so we need to approach i'm going to go back to lnd we need to approach learning sciences we need to see what works and what doesn't work. We need to see the concept of seven plus or minus two bits of information that we should be applying within a learning. And in a virtual perspective, when I ask many uh, people in LND, how many people do you talk to in session when you're in virtual, when you're in a virtual session? People are like 15, 20, no, 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 no. Let me rephrase. How many do you talk to in your virtual session and you actually converse and work with, you'll be still 15 to 20. No, you're talking to one person at a time. You're talking with 15 different distractions, with 15 different people, with 15 different locations, and they're only seeing you. So what you need to do is create a communication that is vertical between you and, the, between you and him and her, and between them and one another of a horizontal means of, 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 of communication. And this is where collaborative strategies come into place. So people should look at exactly what you said, that expensive, short, very, very concise time that we need to capitalize much about, which is that session that wouldn't go no more than like three hours to get the most effect out of it. And it should be application-based, not a session where there's a tiny little video at the top left where a trainer is talking and a huge presentation where loads of bullet points are just dropping one after the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's uh, death by PowerPoint, but I think sometimes that has... Death uh, by Zoom. Uh, by Zoom, by ba Zoomy PowerPoint. Zoomy PowerPoint. Yes. People just, yes. you can see them switching off they're, 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 and they've got, they're still, they'll be typing away, doing stuff because it's just noise in the background. It's not, they're not engaging with that content, which is that journey that we want people to have to get the most out of it. So I just want to talk a bit at the beginning when you talked about the gamification. And I think mm -hmm. that is, that's an area that people say some of these fad words. And obviously when we had a, a chat a couple of weeks ago, you went a lot more in depth with me about gamification and stuff. Because obviously it's not just about giving somebody a badge in the leaderboard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think some people, they think that if we make it competitive or that then it's gamification. And I suppose to a degree it is. But if you want to sort of, sort of talk about some of those sort of what gamification actually is. Well, gamification is truly the buzzword, is truly something that many people are hungry for. They are, they're looking into investing in, and sometimes <clears throat> they invest in it just for the, the glam of what it is, of it's actually nice to say that I'm using something using gamification. But when you go into the depth of what they're doing, they would see, you would see them using a Kahoot or putting a couple of uh, points onto their uh, learning experience and letting people compete with one another. Well, this is not wrong, but this is not right. And when you look into gamification, gamification is not about the game. Gamification is about a strategy. As a matter of fact, I like the translation of gamification in Arabic more than I like how it sounds in English. So in English, it's gamification. But in Arabic, is 
استراتيجيات الالعاب التحفيزيه its motivational strategies using games it, they literally translated a full on definition instead of putting just one word they they they've put a whole sentence okay and and that's 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 exactly what it is we're trying to motivate the people to do something specific and in our case in L&D it's the learning objectives so if i could say something about gamification i would say it's a set of strategies that you alter an existing non-game system with to acquire better outcomes so those are strategies that you put in something that is not game like to make it more motivating for the learners to pursue to make the learners seek that learning objective get to that learning objective in in a fun way or sometimes in a collaborative way or in a way where they get good feedback rapid feedback they get embedded assessments they find a full progression system where they know what they did and where they're going which is if you looked at it any healthy learning experience so gamification again is we're looking at a system and what is a system system is something that has definitive input and a quantifiable outcome there are a set of rules inside of that system that dictate how the process of that system works and there's an artificial conflict in that system where the players or the people inside of that system engage in or they compete within this is what a system is when you look at that system you have to see what that system is mimic to in a, in an lnd process so in lnd process we have the input which is the learners and the content and we have a quantifiable outcome which is the learning objectives stated in verbs or in performance criterion and we have a specific artificial conflict which is them getting the transfer of knowledge and the acquisition of skills or the enhancement of existing skills so when i lay a game on it i need to find a conflict where that happens i turn my players into avatars or teams and guilds and the quantifiable outcome the victory condition can be reaching a code solving a puzzle getting the end the end mile of of an adventure trying to overcome a specific monster all of that so when you look at it it's a learning experience gamification is a healthy learning experience the only difference is that we had a layer of motivation that looks like a game and we i can't remember record it but it's about for me i love play in learning because i think when people are at play whether that's a, a game or whether that's a, an activity or whatever else it is learning is in, is enhanced massively and i think sometimes and what gamification i think has allowed people to talk about is that play in learning which was taboo wasn't it before it says no you can't learning is serious learning is yeah. serious. work is serious i think gamification has allowed us to we call it games but you play we play games Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all the time and most of us like we have board games we have this we have that and they're the same types of things you think about the board games you play whether it's monopoly or whether it's whatever game it is there are a set of rules and then that adapts your behavior accordingly in that game to win because you understand but people will play them differently which i think is amazing 
And, and the point is, when we're doing something that is game-like or we're doing a play, we're leveraging people's natural desires for socializing, for mastery, for competition, for achievement, for status, for self-expression, for altruism, for, for a sense of closure, that we finished the game, that we cracked the code, that we did a specific thing. So games, as a matter of fact, highlight so much of our human aspiration. If you looked at it, most of our life is basically a game. We're actually in a game trying to beat the, the pandemic. We're trying to beat the virus by our social distancing. And we are hungry for that closure, for that time that I can step out of my home without a, without a mask, without having alcohol in my hand, spraying everyone around me and drinking it basically all the time. And I'm not saying like drinking alcohol in that sense. I mean, the other sense of drinking alcohol that we spray. <laughs> so we're, this is a game. We're in a game that has, but well, in the game of pandemic, the mechanic for loss of virgin is pretty high. We are high on the loss of virgin. In games, in actual games, we don't put that high sensitivity for a loss of virgin. But again, this is what we're going through. So games are life. They're, they're an expression of what we do every day. You're creating a pervasive layer where people can feel safe, feel that they are purposeful, and they're engaged in something. And this is how people should look at it. I know that there, there, there are huge complexities of how to make a game work, and there's like the prototyping and the testing and seeing if people are engaged enough or not. But you don't need to go to that extent. You don't need to do enhanced video games that work on its own. Sometimes a game can be as simple as creating a miniature Sims where people go somewhere, do something, earn something, then use what they earned in a different experience that you're building. And that experience relates to the learning that you want to, to bridge through them. And it goes on this way. It doesn't have to be God of War or a board game like Catan. It doesn't have to be that complex. And that's why so many people, when they approach gamification, they, they get terrified. They get afraid. They get intimidated by the concept. But it, actually, it's, it's pretty simple. It's very simple if you looked at it. I think it's like, it's like the best games. The best games are really simple to understand and engage but there's a level of complexity if you really get into them. The, the people who really get into these games go to a level of complexity, whereas the people who are just like casual users will be quite happy exchange. They know roughly what they're doing, but they're never going to be the best at it because they're not willing to invest that sort of time to understand those nuances. But I just want to go back to what you were saying about that cognitive load, because I think that's quite important for us to remember. And a guy, I'm a member of a thing called the Exchange Community, and there's a guy called Brother James in there, and he has a very good point. Now, when, whenever we ask people to do something in learning, whatever it is, whether we're giving people instructions to go into an activity, whether we're people to getting people onto our activities, he said it's about energy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He said the energy should be directed towards the learning. Yes. The more confusing we make it, the more they have to think outside of that, the less energy they have got concentrating on the learning. So that goes about, and I think this is something really, it's our instructions. Building a game is great, but how many times have you opened the game and then spent two and a half hours in discussions saying, what on earth are the rules? I oh, instructional. This way. Hmm? 
I bought a game this way. It's called the Ancient World. Trust me, I haven't played it once. The shelf. It took us two hours to try to understand how it works. And I opened tutorials on YouTube and I looked into a huge manual of 40 pages. And I'm trying to understand what do you need me to do? How am I going to start the game? And I, 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 I got fed up. I got fed up with the whole thing. I bought it. I left it. It's, it's, a, it's a memorabilia. It's, it's, a, it's a decor. <laughs> I like those two questions. What do you want me to do? How do I start? And I think if we just drum it down to those really, really basic, right, this is what I'd like you to do, and this is how I'd like you to do it, but make it in such a way that we explain it, either verbally or in writing. And for me, verbal instructions are much easier than written instructions. Yeah. Without a shadow of a doubt. I was working with an old colleague of mine called Fee, Fee Hills, and she has an art of writing instructions. And then when I wrote stuff, she was like, that does not make sense. I've got no idea what you're asking me to do. And I think that's, again, what we were going back to, which is part of that UX you were talking about, the user experience, is what is somebody going to uh, think when they read this, listen to this, have this experience? And I do, yeah. and we were discussing before, and I definitely think that's an area that we should, L&D need to get much more savvy with that user experience. One of the aspects of, of gamification, and Yokai Chao talked about it before, and he's one of the gurus. He's one of the, the early adopters of the concept of gamification. He has a book called Actionable Behavior. And he talked about a very, very cornerstone point that everyone has to go through when they're doing gamification, scaffolding. You need to put the right steps for the learner, or I'm sorry, for the gamer in this sense, for the gamer to understand what this experience is all about. And if people get intimidated by the word UX, just go to Super Mario. Play Super Mario. Super Mario at the beginning, it leaves you a margin before you go to the bricks and the little turtles where you can experience how to jump. You click on jumping, 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 so you know how to jump. And then it gets you a small turtle where you either hop on it, so you kill it, or you approach it and it starts to affect you. And this is scaffolding at the beginning of the game. And then when you break a brick, you get points for it and you get the, the, the golden coins and you learn just by the basic utility of pressing one button that this is how you play the game. This is the simplest form of scaffolding. So you either do that scaffolding as an orientation before your program starts or before your game starts, or you let the people experience it first before you go into your game in depth. Like there's a very lovely person called Mohsen Memon, and he has this amazing game called Evive. And he opens up a full certification on it. I'm actually certified in it. And in our certification, when we tell the people about the game, we give them 15 minutes to experience the game as a demo. Once we're all good and done and they understand every aspect of the game, then we start the game and we start a new session and we build upon it. And you should look at it this way. Do not exhaust the people in understanding your program or understanding your game and try to invest in that energy of how to make something out of your program instead, to reach the learning objectives instead. So yeah, 
Yeah, it goes back to that en- that energy, doesn't it? That Brother James was talking about. How can we, in in the experience from before to during and after, and I think we've got to look at that longevity of experience we have with people. How can you make the, the uh, your phrase the cognitive load mm-hmm. applicable? So people are on a learning journey to learn, as you say, to have a, a desired a, a notifiable outcome, whether that's a enhanced enhanced behavioural change, whether it's enhanced knowledge or new knowledge what do we want somebody to know be able to do or think differently as as an outcome of this experience and then how do we design something like that and then how do we make that journey as smooth for them as less confusing as possible so that they're they're, all their thinking is about the the objectives or the things in there to get that objective that outcome we're we're hoping to achieve and the beauty of gamification that well, we talk about gamification as a system, but if we're going into the depth of gamification and what it is, there's this paper that extremely famous, it's called the MDA by Matt LeBlanc. And the MDA is basically mechanics, dynamics, and aesthetics. And <clears throat> mechanics are basically the steam engines that run the gamification process. So when you're thinking about, okay, I want the people to be scaffolded, there's a mechanic for this. When you want people to get invested in the game by earning something, there's a mechanic for this. When you want to put people in teams, that's a mechanic. When you want to put people where they need to have a means of social status or social pressure or a victory condition or challenges or a specific strategy, all of those are mechanics. They're cocks. When you put those cocks together, it starts to work as a fully operative game. And when we put those cogs or the mechanics, where's the learning? This is what dynamics are all about. Dynamics are the fostered behaviors and the fostered asserted actions that come out of the mechanics. So our learning happens within the dynamics as a result of the mechanics that we put. So let's, let's just say that I'm putting a game where project managers need to learn about work breakdown structure. So I'm going to be implanting inside of a game that they need to use WBS to make up a plan to overcome the hurdle that the company is going through. So by letting them know what is a WBS and using WBS to win the game, this way I'm putting a mechanic that would show as a learning dynamic out of the game. And this way I'm reaching my learning objectives. Now, the aesthetic is the UX, UX that we're talking about, the theme, the experience, the engagement. And in the paper, there were so many themes. There's like the sensation theme, the fantasy theme, the adventure theme. Those are the overarching look and feel of how the whole thing is all about. And again, you can't be putting a specific theme and the mechanic can give you more than one experience. Like for instance, I could put the mechanic of of teams and if it's a theme that is fantasy, then it would be about like mythology and people are thinking with high wit and imagination about what to do. So the whole thing of the MDA is absolutely important when you're looking at a game. What do I need the people to do? Then I put the right mechanics for it. And how I want them to feel is I put the right aesthetics to it. And together we work on 
enriching that dynamic because this is where all the learning comes into place. So say that is, I think it's one of those typicals. We can, uh, I think some people will create some sort of activities or games without realizing it's gamification. And it's when you, when you then talk about the sort of the science behind it, it can be, it can be extraordinarily in depth. You talk about mechanics, you're talking about the feel of it. You're talking about the learning outcomes and that, and it does make sense how all these different things fit together to create that. And I think before we were talking uh, on the first time we had a chat is about, is there eight, eight or eight? mechanics that are available within all the main mechanics we use in games sort of motivational things that we have so leading status whether leading. it was whether it was a challenge where it was ongoing so people could carry on doing it forever or if there was an outcome they needed to achieve like a, a oh yeah a challenge yeah. There are, there is a plethora of mechanics. I thought, I thought I just, the, the number eight comes from memory, but from memory, but I can't remember what that was. It was something like Oct or something in our conversation. Oh yeah. The, what you're talking about is called the Octalysis. And this is, right, uh, okay. this is by Yukai Chao. Mm. So Yukai Chao has set eight specific mechanics that when you put them together, you make up a game. And actually it's not eight mechanics per se. It's actually eight elements where each and every part of it encompasses more than one mechanic and that's why it's called the octalysis mm -hmm. it's an octa analysis or the octalysis and uh, it's it's something that everyone should look into like yukai chao has done this revolutionary framework that we all look, look up to in gamification and also there's kevin warbach and obviously there's also carl cup and those people have put the foundations of how us in LND should study gamification, specifically Kharkov, because Kevin Warbeck and, and, and Yukai Chow are talking about gamification for anything. Like you can gamify a marketing plan, uh, sorry, a marketing campaign mm -hmm. or a people engagement plan or competition, come what may. But Carl Cup specifically is looking at gamification from an LND perspective. And also Carl Pop has created books on microlearning using games and microlearning as a standalone, as a standalone uh, solution that you can add up to your LND toolbox. But if we go back to gameful learning, there's a very lovely example that I would invite everyone to go and look at, which is a game called Virulent. And this was made in a university. And it's done by Dr. Yin and Dr. Jenny Gumpers in, in University of, of Madison for medical uh, microbiology and immunology, where you start to play as a virus. You're a virus called Raven, and you go and infect a body. And the whole thing is, is basically to be that awful virus that would infect the whole body and kill it to the core. And through the process, you learn how viruses infect the body and how it does mitosis and how it goes from one cell to the other. And this is a true representation of a game that teaches, a game that tells exactly what you should do about something so simple, so complex like immunology and medical biology. And when you look at it, it's fun, it's interesting, 
and you're trying to do something that you wouldn't even think about doing. You always think about me being the body that kills the virus, not me being the virus that kills the body. Mm. So yeah, that's that's one example that people should look into. Just write down on Google virulence and you can see the whole thing. Well, I think it's an example, isn't it? By giving somebody an experience through the game, mm-hmm. they are learning so much about immunization and biology. And so instead of somebody explaining, or as we were talking about with the little face there and slides, which is a, a very passive way of learning. So I like the fact of gamification because I, I, I come from, I love experiential learning. And yeah. so to me, gamification is that experience. Have have an experience, whatever it may be, construct an experience through a game or through whatever you want that creates an environment that will help create the outcome. But I think if you look at that, what this person does is learn so much, so, so much, and possibly even more than if you're just given the information. Because sure. you're also, they, they're now thinking about, they're learning about strategy they're developing a strategy they're starting to think about what goes next how it comes on so and i think that's when we start looking at experiences and gamification what it can do is create a whole range of learning outcomes that are so much more powerful potentially than the the original ones we wanted them to do and rotating back to two things that you've mentioned cx as customer experience and also gamification not depending on points badges and leaderboards is there's very famous piece of e-learning by Kathy Moore, who did the book action, the book on action mapping. It's called Haji Kamal. And it's basically an e-learning with a very, very amazing, brilliant branching scenario where you do where you go through a story of who is Haji Kamal. And every scene is basically a scene where you take one decision, that one decision will dictate how the story goes. There are no points, there are no badges, there are no levels. There's only a goal of reaching to the end of that story. And if anyone is a Netflix watcher, I know they would have enjoyed Black Mirror's movie, Bandersnatch, where you are watching on Netflix and you're choosing what the character, what your antagonist would do, what the protagonist would do, how you dictate the events of the movie. This is exactly it. This is a game. Games are about choices. Games are about decisions. It doesn't have to be a game about leveling and points and, and, and a fierce competition between people or between you and a system. It's actually you getting engulfed with an experience. And so many people have followed in the footstep of Kathy Moore, and they've created e-learning experience where you are interacting with a client as a customer service representative, for example, and what to do with them and the consequences of it. And it's game-like, it's interesting, and you repeat it and you go again. And I'm like, okay, I took this decision at first, and then I took the second decision and the third decision. What would happen if I went for second, first, and then second? To see what would what will come out out what will come out out of it, and this is a mechanic called endless game, where someone can actually relive the game over and over just for the sake of learning, out of pure curiosity. He's he or she is investing time just to get more out of the game because it's so engaging. And I think that 
goes back to something that there was some research that if we can peak curiosity in something, then people's learning or the, the retention of knowledge is massively increased. So what they learn because there's a curiosity in the way the curiosity could be, again, you talk about decision-making because we've got an outcome and we say, well, I think I'll do that. I'll get the right outcome. So we want to know if our decisions are going to get the outputs that we're expecting. So we're, 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 we've invested cognitively invested into that activity and therefore we're much more likely to stay with it so even something like that you could do a little quiz at the beginning oh this is what we're going to look at what do you think the outcome would have been if we did this and just get people to vote on it and go this is what i think it is and they're going to engage in that process and then you say this is what we've got now we'll look at it again is anyone going to change your minds boom, 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 boom. and that could be just something in a classroom you could do that sort of process where you're building something in that's a, a peaking curiosity by asking questions about what might happen in the future so people are trying to predict so you give them a set of out thingies they, they predict something they're going to see if they're right Which or is actually you can even explain your content through it for instance in exactly four hours from now four is it four yeah four hours from now i'm starting a session and my session tonight i'll be playing a board game the board game is not for the game i'm explaining the content through the game so you obviously know about Socratic questions, which is a question that dictates you to think and to give me more data out of it. And I am placing most of my content in the form of questions placed in tiles of a board game, of a virtual board game. And people will be strategizing on which tiles they should go into because each and every tile has a different color code and every tile away from the color code, it has a different uh, score point. So they will be strategizing on which tiles they should go for and how they will be closing onto their opponents to get the highest number of tiles, while each and every tile explains part of my content. And I'm depending on the, the, oldest, the oldest concept, I mean, oldest time in LND, 80% from the audience, 20% from you as an instructor, or a facilitator. So I'm giving them the 80%. And I'm giving them points only for the effort of answering, not for get, giving me the model answer, because this is, what, this is not what I'm working for. This is not what I'm going behind. I'm going behind them to think, mm -hmm. to conceptualize. Once they conceptualize, once they think, once they start to understand the topic by question and answer, I am winning. I am doing this throughout a game i'm Absolutely. doing this using a board game online with them interacting on it i love socratic questioning i love a question that's got no right or wrong answer that it is about what you say it's about then exploring in depth why do you think what you think what's mm -hmm. what's the rationale behind that thinking which i mean if we can help people develop that sort of ability and, and openness to question their own assumptions and then be willing and open to changing their mind based on new information coming in. I mean, that's a skill that would be amazing in organizations that we would need now because of the ever-changing environment and some of our decisions based on what uh, Gary Klein calls un untruths. So we're stuck with these untruth, untruth assumptions that yeah. are impacting on our decision-making as we do. So I think a, an activity like that, which is built around Socratic questioning, is, is developing a huge skill in people when they're sort of ongoing. But they don't say so in a game it's there and then it's about the reflection afterwards and that you're developing that skill, that sort of micro behavior.
It's a book you might like. I can't remember if I've told you. It's called The Little Book of Thunks. Yeah, I went, I went through it. Did you go through it? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I did. Brilliant book. It's a brilliant book about, I can't remember who wrote it now. I can never remember people's names. It's a terrible thing. But yeah, psychology of, not psychology, not psychology, philosophy for schools. And a, in, I like how it's a small manifesto. It's, it's just it's to the point. It's to the point, and there's some great questions. The, the one about uh, whether I go into was it going to a news agents and and read a read a read a magazine and put the magazine back on the shelf and leave is that theft? I think that is a is such a powerful question. Have you built that into something like an ethics training and say a thing about that, or give give that as a case study about something something that somebody did in your work and you're the ethics committee? How would you how would you result in that and create that sort of case study around that one question? It could be a game of branching scenarios. Yeah, so if we did this, if and we then that. we look into the consequences of what would happen there, and mm -hmm. then, and what would come out out of your decision later on in future decisions that you do, and that would make them start to question their own understanding of things, their own understanding of values. I mean, we we can work on it, me and you, and we can we can make create that. We could do this one hell of a game. <laughs> ethical questioning, branching out. So this is what you did with this person, and this has now happened in two weeks' time. What are you going to do? Oh, and but again, I think the good thing about that is, as you say, that's the never ending because the next time you do that game, it's going to create a whole different set of outcomes based on the input from the players. Mm -hmm. And I think when I go to um, I, a guy I used to work with called, called Alan, and he said, the beautiful thing about an activity or a game is people bring their own context into it. So the same game can have multiple different layers, depths, and complexity based on the people who are playing it. So if you give Scrabble to a group of seven-year-old kids, it's going to be a game. If you give a group a game of Scrabble to people who write for a living. They would find it highly sophisticated. Highly, but it's the same game, same rules. Yeah. It's the context of the people that bring it in. So I love the fact about gamification is that say that, that complexity in that layers people bring their own experiences in, which drives the learning that comes out. I'm one of those that advocate a specific thing. And even, you know that I'm going to GamerCon as a speaker. And my concept is people look at games in a very complex fashion. And th that's right. That, that, that's true. I, I create games that are complex and, 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 and it makes me hit my head <laughs> to the wall. But, but the thing is, if you make up a really good story sorry, with a definitive character or an antagonist has proper character development. Like anytime you watch a movie and you see weak character development, you don't like that movie. So build something with good character development. Go into Joseph Campbell's hero's journey and see how that works out. So build a story with a good antagonist, with a good villain, a protagonist and I'm sorry with a good protagonist and a good antagonist I'm sorry I got I got mixed up on this and um, a hero a villain a conflict an ending and when you do this completely right you have created a game you have created a proper game now take that story and layer every bit of your learning in it in the character development of the protagonist, put up the part of the knowledge that you want the people to be scaffolded upon. On each and every hurdle, 
that he or she needs, put an embedded assessment. Put a way for them to get a feedback on something. As you go and the game progresses, the learner is progressing with the game. The learner is evolving with the game as the character develops. All the way when he or she meets a villain, an antagonist, and then they go into that falling action of learning something and getting to a closure. And that closure will be your learning objective, that ending, that victory condition. So I, I was just telling you, Kathy Moore did a good game out of a good story. We were talking about now a, a game out of values and concepts. Do the same. Yep. And I don't think, I think when you get into that thing, I really like the way you've done that journey is understand what you've got, who we're going to be. Hero's journey is going to be a great place for, for storytelling and then just build it around and you want people to progress. You reward them, give them, give them something to do. And then that's the reward, the recognition, and then just say the, the feedback along it. And that to me is the feedback part of it. And that learning is important because that's the reflection where we mm -hmm. start embedding the learning even more because a lot of people go away and that we like having fun. So people have done these team building exercises in the team and they're, they're great fun. And the question I ask is how much reflection was built into that? A lot. <laughs> and it depends also on which scenario. I mean, it's not only the hero's journey. So you can have a protagonist that does this, or you can have a protagonist that goes on to from rags to riches from uh, which zero to hero, a rebirth, someone that was extremely awful, and then he's learning to be a better person. You can go into a story that is an adventure or a quest where they collect assets and skills and knowledge as they go. You can go into a story that is overcoming a monster. So it's, it's, it's choosing a storyline and being committed to it it would make up a good learning because people like stories. They no, get I mean, enchanted by them. I think you've just learned to look at things like Disney or anything like that. Look at the books and yes. Disney. And then you can probably, even if you look at films, you can say there are probably eight to 10 themes that run through most films. They're just a variation on a theme. And as you've expressed most of it, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I'm sure we could probably go on for hours and hours and hours and hours <laughs> talking about various other things. We now have a very important task. We've got to name this thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> so what do you what do you think we could call it? What do you reckon? I'm not. Oh, we've gone everywhere. We've went into almost everything. I mean, how we might play LND. How <laughs> how we might play in LND. I like that. So we could talk about how might we play in LND? As long as people don't. Think didn't, yeah, because we didn't talk about gamification per se. We went <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> I tend to. That's a terrible. That's a, that's I don't a, mind. I don't mind. I love unscripted. They just go wherever they go. I love rants. I don't mind. I, I, I do it on my own podcast. Let's rant. Let's talk. Let's go. Let's just do what we do. And I mean, with something we might actually have to have a chat with afterwards is I quite that, that idea now, the concept of the ethics in business. I think ethics and trust in business is a huge thing. I am absolutely game. With I'm game it. on. Well, I've got, I've got a trust model. And you're the gamification guy. So I think if we put the things together, I'm sure we can come up with something. And with that tantalizing prospects, it's time to say thank you very much, Mo, for your time. It was great speaking to you. And thank you for everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. See you next time.